message you've put upon me, but I pray, Lord, for the ears that will hear your message today, that you would speak through me. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, so I do feel a burden this morning to speak on a topic that's not easy, which seems to be my pattern. I always pick topics that are not easy, and I'm not nervous to speak it, but I'm a little nervous for you to hear it, if that makes sense. Uh, So please uh, take my words in the kindest possible way. Um, And when I speak today, it will touch on subjects And I honestly don't know where anyone stands on these subjects, so if it sounds like I'm picking on you, I'm not, because I I really have no idea. Uh, And I almost purposely don't want to know where everyone stands, because I don't want to have an opinion one way or the other. Um, So I'm not picking on anyone in particular. But obviously the times we live in, they feel like extraordinary times. And... With extraordinary situations, we also feel stress and we feel all kinds of other emotions that we're not used to feeling. And we know that, I mean, more and more, we're asked to take sides. And so as we take sides, we're going to have conflict. Uh, And so as we have conflict outside the church, there can be conflict in the church, and that's not good. And we have to not lose hope. I think, I think a lot of people's situation today is starting to look hopeless for all kinds of reasons. Political reasons, financial reasons. There's lots of reasons to be losing hope. And as a people, we know we're getting closer and closer to the end of time. So we should be gaining hope. So I'm hoping, hoping that this will be an uplifting message Um, But it may not seem like it at first. Um, You know, every day that we're alive is a great day. Um, And the Bible even confirms, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. So even though you may not feel like a lion today, you may feel like a dog, but it's better to be alive than dead And I think as we get closer to the end, lots of people are going to feel like they wish they were dead. And we have to not feel those things. I used to suffer depression before I was an Adventist. Uh, Right when I came into the church, I took Neil Nedley's depression recovery seminar, and it was absolutely turned my life around. I've never felt depression the same since. Maybe very mild, but I had the tools to cope. But there was another thing that happened. I said, right as I came in the church. So the other thing I did, besides taking the depression recovery, is I joined a movement. Sometimes, uh, well, many times, the Advent church, the message, is called a movement. Uh, If you look, especially in the 19th century, the pioneers often referred to it as the Advent movement. And they called it that even before we had the name Seventh-day Adventist. It was really talking about that time in the 1840s where we were suddenly becoming aware of the soon coming of Christ, and that was called the Advent Movement. And it was a movement because at the time it didn't have a denomination yet, it didn't have a name, it was a movement of people looking for the soon coming of Christ. And then later, as the denomination developed, one of the early things uh, we had was a health message, and that was called a movement, the health movement, the, the health reform movement. 
And it's important to belong to a movement of something bigger than yourself. This actually is something that helps with depression, is to not focus inward on yourself and your problems. Try to help other people with their problems. Um, and when you're a movement, you're not just on your own. You're, you're with people with a purpose. And uh, so that's a very good thing. Uh, but there are lots of movements today, and especially being in an election year, um, our allegiances are pulled in lots of directions. And it's, it's easy to believe that because we're Adventists and we have a message, if we see a similar message, we should latch on to that one too. And uh, we have a little bit of warning about that. So this comes from manuscript releases, 1899. This was a letter that was written, but then you can see the... Um, the sources also, this same letter was published in part or in whole in Councils for the Church, Fundamentals of Edu Christian Education, and Gospel Workers. So it was published in many contexts. Um, but this one, you know, this, this specifically is talking about um, voting. Because being an election year, we hear a lot of political discussion and the spirit of prophecy has something to say on this topic. And it's not the normal thing you would think. We don't mention it often, especially from the pulpit. But because of the intensity this year, I think we should examine it a little bit. I highlighted the important parts. The Lord would have his people bury political questions. On these themes, silence is eloquence. Christ calls upon his followers to come into unity on the pure gospel principles which are plainly revealed in the word of God. We cannot with safety vote for political parties. We can, for we do not know who we are voting for. We cannot with safety take part in any political schemes. And you think, well, you know, the candidates spend months trying to tell us who they are. What does that mean? But notice the key there. We can't with safety vote for political parties because if you belong to a party, you're also part of a bigger movement. You've probably noticed that every election cycle, especially in presidential campaigns, they make personal promises, but when they're elected, their personal promises get eclipsed by party movements. And so they say one thing and then they don't do it and you think, oh, they were hypocrites. Not really. They were speaking personally, and then once elected, they're speaking as a party. And that's what it means. You can't be sure what they're going to do in office because they are not acting on their own. They're in parties. And the parties are not always clear about what their schemes really are. And so you think, well, is this telling us that we can't vote? Uh, I'm not going to make that conclusion for you. But, but think it through and think of experiences that you've had of what you think you're voting for and then the outcomes. Um, and then you decide for yourself. But we'll, we'll continue with the quote here. Uh, we cannot labor to please men who will use their influence to repress religious liberty. Now, religious liberty is often not discussed in the campaign. Sometimes it is. Um, but often when it is discussed, it's not addressing the, the religious liberty that we are concerned about. They make it about other things. But it's not a prime 
you know, we hear First Amendment all the time, but they're talking about press. Sometimes they're talking about assembly, especially today in COVID where we're not able to assemble the way we used to. But that also is the um, freedom uh, to pursue your religion in any way you choose. That's also First Amendment. Um, but that part's not discussed as often. Uh, and so uh, we, we cannot labor to please men who will use their influence to repress religious liberty and to set in operation oppressive measures to lead or compel their fellow men to keep Sunday as the Sabbath. Now, if you're not a Seventh-day Adventist or you are not familiar with our long history, that might be a little bit confusing. Uh, why would people, why would the state compel people to keep Sunday as the Sabbath, and why is that really a problem? Um, we will look at that a little bit more later. But how is that even biblical? Uh, you know, because we're concerned about the gospel. That's our main concern in this movement. We're concerned about spreading the gospel. And then you hear things about like, oh, Sunday legislation, Sunday law is coming. Is that part of the gospel? And in fact, it is, because the gospel message is rooted in the law of God, and we in this church take very seriously the fourth commandment, to keep the Sabbath holy, to remember the Sabbath, that it is the seventh day. And in uh, Exodus, and in, um, you know, I didn't think of putting this verse in until just now, but in Ezekiel 12.20 and Ezekiel 20.20, both verses confirm that the Sabbath is the sign uh, that we are God's people, that, this, that our keeping and remembering the Sabbath is a sign that we are God's people to others, but also to God. That's how God knows that we're his people, because we keep the Sabbath. It's his sign. It's his mark on us. That in, in the Old Testament, the same word mark is, and sign is the same word. So you could say it's the mark of God's people is the Sabbath. And we know in Revelation it speaks about the mark of the beast. So the mark of the beast is the counter to the mark of God. And the Roman church has declared that their mark of authority, that they are above the Bible, is Sunday sacredness. Because as they say, nowhere in the Bible does it, uh, give, does it authorize to keep Sunday as the Sabbath. The only place, the only reason that the world, anyone in the world keeps Sunday is because Rome has said our decrees are above the Bible and the evidence is Sunday sacredness. And there, um, during the Counter-Reformation, the Roman Church concluded that they won the Counter-Reformation because the clear sign, the, the Reformation principle was sola scriptura, the Bible, the Bible alone, and the Roman Church said clearly those protestants do not obey the bible alone and the evidence is sunday they all keep sunday except the adventist church so logically all protestants should be seventh-day adventists and that is a very powerful statement and so the the their indication that they have authority over scripture is sunday so when we when we vote for parties or for people i, I you, you know if you try to be neutral and think is there a party today who would not vote for Sunday legislation? I don't think there is. I think every party could find a reason to impose Sunday um, by legislation. 
And when it comes by legislation, they're not going to say, you have to join a church and worship God on Sunday. They're going to leave the church part out. They're going to leave God out. But they will enforce uh, the keeping of Sunday and not of Sabbath. They will uh, prevent uh, Sabbath. Um, I just change my settings here. Um, so it goes on and says, the first day of the week is not a day to be reverenced. It is a spurious Sabbath, and the members of the, Lord, uh, of the Lord's family cannot participate with the men who exalt this day and violate the law of God by trampling upon his Sabbath. The people of God are not to vote to place such men in office, for when they do this, they are partakers with them in the sins which they commit while in office. That's a different way of looking at voting, that when you vote for someone that you feel strongly this is the right direction for us to go and then they do something you did not expect because they didn't mention that in their campaign slogans but your vote is placed on them you've endorsed them which means you endorse their actions when they're in office that's a little bit heavier burden when you think of voting now there are questions that come up maybe in your town you know maybe they, they want to decide um, are we going to spend $5 million to renovate the elementary school or are we going to kick the can down the road and you might have a very strong opinion because of taxes and all kinds of other reasons and maybe the school's just fine and you think, no, this is a bad financial decision for the town. I'm going to vote yes or no. I don't think she's talking about that. I think these are questions that clearly we are participating in our local government. We are participating as citizens. You know, a lot of people are going to bristle at this and say, well, but it's my civic duty to vote. Uh, your civic duty is to participate in government. That is how this country is founded. That's, it requires our participation. Now, what the parties have done is put forward candidates. And so let's say the, the primary comes around and you vote for your candidate and your candidate doesn't win. Well, you've actually already expressed your opinion, but now they expect you to take the ones you didn't vote for and now you're going to choose between those the ones you didn't want, but they still expect your participation. But you already participated. And what if the parties, both parties, all the parties, there's more than two parties now, what if everyone puts forward people and you look down each one and say, no, they actually don't represent me. Do you know that not voting is also an expression of your civic duty? Because when you don't vote, you're saying you haven't given us fair representation. We're not going to be pressured into voting. And you notice every year, they pressure people to get the voter turnout high. And the reason they do this is because a high voter turnout creates what they call a mandate. So when they get enough, of the per enough percentage of people, then they can go into office and say, well, we have a mandate from the people to do exactly what we promised to do. And so you are actually voicing an opinion by not voting and not giving the mandate. So when they win the election, but only with 20 or 30% of the total vote, that's hardly a mandate. They can't claim that they represent all the people when they only got 20% of the vote. Uh, and so just keep that in mind when you think of your civic duty and you consider these questions. Um, and then it goes on and says, what are we to do then? Let political questions alone. 
Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And then the spirit of prophecy adds this note, the word fellowship means participation, partnership. Uh, so in that scripture where it says fellowship, it says for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness. What participation or partnership? I don't think any of us would have thought of this verse in connection with voting. But when, when we vote, we are becoming partners or we are participating with uh, the political leaders who win if we voted, if we put our vote toward them. We are becoming partners. And can we be sure that we're not becoming partners with darkness? or infidels. Um, and then it, it, this gets to be even more direct. Those teachers in the church or in the school who distinguish themselves by their zeal and politics should be relieved of their work and responsibilities without delay for the Lord will not cooperate with them. That's very interesting. When we're in a place, especially a place that we are supposed to be influencing people for the gospel, this is the purpose for our schools, this is the purpose for our churches. We are light to the community, and when we take that time and that platform and use it for politics, it's a mismatch. And, and the, the clear indication here is that the Lord doesn't cooperate when you try to spread political views. So, um, and then we'll go to the next one. It says, every teacher, minister, or leader in our ranks who is stirred with a desire to ventilate his opinions on political questions should be converted by a belief in the truth or give up his work. The influence must tell of a laborer together with God in winning souls to Christ, or his credentials must be taken from him. If he does not change, he will do harm and only harm. All right, so the question is to vote or not to vote. And as I said, we'll leave that to every man's conscience. Um, but I didn't want anyone to be ignorant of these ideas that when you vote, you are aligning yourself in a particular way with candidates that we put into office. Um, and so you should think about it very clearly. And whichever way you decide to vote, it's okay not to share all of our political opinions. We get hung up because we think that the political opinions have a lot to do with the gospel and furthering the gospel and the times we live in and trying to, uh, like the, the events of the day are so powerful, we think, well, with our message, we should be involved in that political sphere uh, because this is where people are concerned in the world. Uh, and I would argue that we might not understand the gospel message clearly enough if we believe that politics is closely aligned with it, or that our voice is important in the political sphere. And you, you might say, well, but the things that are going on and the things that Congress is talking about and what they're going to vote for, we got to get involved. Um, so there's a lot of talk today about social justice. In the 19th century, uh, when the pioneers uh, were actively working, they, there was a term social gospel, and that social gospel started by a Baptist minister going around the country. Uh, I forget his name. I think it was Rauschenbaum or something to that effect. He had a German name. And he coined the term social gospel. He was a very popular speaker. 
And that eventually evolved into what today is called social justice. So it started as a Baptist movement, um, and it was a hot topic of the day. And social gospel is just what you would think it is. It's the idea that our main concern today would be caring for the needs of, the physical needs of people, which of course we do. That is part of what we do. But prioritizing that above all else because the needs are so dire and direct. When we look at the news, when we see the things happening around the country, we can see clearly a lot of physical needs that need to be met. And so the idea is, well, how can we as good Christians sit back and watch these horrible things happen and all we're talking about is these lofty spiritual ideas of salvation while people can't feed themselves? Like, this, this feels like it doesn't match. So it's very seductive. So let's see, um, what, are we, what is the question really that we need to, how can we think about these things? Um, and surprisingly, Spirit of Prophecy does give a little bit of guidance. And I'm starting with Spirit of Prophecy, but we're going to move it uh, to the Scriptures because it's very important to see this in Scripture, but I feel like we need a foundation, a, a way to look at it before we see it in the Scripture. The Lord has marked out our way of working. As a people, so she's talking about us Seventh-day Adventists, we, as a people, we are a movement. So as a people, we are not to imitate and fall in with the Salvation Army methods. This is not the work that the Lord has given us to do. Neither is it our work to condemn them and speak harsh words against them. That's very important. Um, actually, she explains more. There are precious self-sacrificing souls in the Salvation Army. We are to treat them kindly. There are in the Army honest souls who are sincerely serving the Lord and who will see greater light advancing to the acceptance of all truth. The Salvation Army workers are trying to save the neglected, downtrodden ones. Discourage them not. Let them do that class of work by their own methods and in their own way. But the Lord has plainly pointed out the work that Seventh-day Adventists are to do. Now that's very interesting. There's nothing wrong with what the Salvation Army does or their methods. Uh, I think their methods have changed a little since her day, but it's essentially the same. It's essentially that idea of the uh, gospel um, together with social work. And so who better to, to administer the social work than Christians? And this is a good thing. It's a very good thing for Christians to be involved in the social needs of the community and in that sphere. But God has already set up a movement for that. This movement is different. And when we lose our direction and we think, well, we're not being very successful in advancing our message that we've been given, maybe it's because we're neglecting other messages. Maybe we're not focusing enough on the social needs of people, and that's why they don't hear our really important message for this time. Maybe they can't hear the spiritual because we haven't addressed the social. But this, is, this can be a little bit deceptive because it can pull us away from the work we're supposed to do. And pretty soon, we're known just as another Salvation Army. Oh, they do the social stuff. And, and then when the times are tough, are they going to come to us for the spiritual stuff? No, because we've, we've already labeled ourselves as we're here for the social needs. 
That's not our job. That's not the movement we've been called into. That's not the message we've been given. But often it's easier to see what other people are doing and saying, well, that looks easier than what we're doing. We're really failing at our message. Maybe we should pick up a new message or a different message. It's not that Jesus neglected the social needs. That's clear. But always it was married to his message of salvation. If you notice, when he goes into towns and he heals people, um, it's not as clear in the Bible. You can see it in the Bible, but when you um, look at Spirit of Prophecy and Desire of Ages and um, I think also Acts of the Apostles, it's very clear that Jesus went into towns. He did not heal everyone in the town who was sick. He healed some people. Why would he do that? He had the power to heal everybody. Wouldn't that have made the movement even better? Um, there were other towns that he completely neglected because of their attitude. He just moved on. Didn't help anybody in the whole town. And then there were instances, I think, I, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think there were times when everyone who was sick was healed in the town because of the attitude of that town. Um, and so th the idea of the social gospel part needs a little bit, it's, it's more nuanced than how we think of it. Um, and so it's just, it's something for us to consider when we're thinking about the social issues going on in the day that seem very positive to hitch our wagon onto. Well, isn't racism a real problem? Sure it is. Does that mean that every movement that's dealing with racism we should hitch our wagon to? Or any of the movements? Because is it going to uh, cloud our message and more importantly take us away, take our time away, our energy away, and our focus away? Because this is the time when we need to focus very, very clearly. Uh, this is a very interesting article from E.J. Wagner in 19, 1895. This was from Present Truth UK. So Present Truth magazine, they published in the U.S., but they had a different edition for the United Kingdom. And E.J. Wagner at this time was spending his time as the editor there in London. I think he was teaching there and he was the editor. And this is right at the time of the height of the social gospel message. It had already been going on for 50 years or so said, on the top of these vain dreams, there comes the clamor for a social gospel. Though what that phrase means is not always easy to define, just like today. Social justice, what exactly does that mean? The preacher is to put into the background the eternal truths that he may cater for temporal wants. He is to forsake the word of God and serve table. He is to forget the soul's hunger in speaking for the necessities of the body. He is to resign the prophet's functions for the more popular arts of the demagogue. We are told even that if Christ were to come again, he would come as a social reformer, as the champion of the labor party, the, to multiply loaves and double wages. So nothing has really changed. The end of the 19th century sounds like the beginning of the 21st century. And it would be easy to believe that this would be Oh, how could you believe that if Christ were here on earth today that he wouldn't be concerned about all these social issues? I think it's because we're not, uh, we're not, mostly we are not aware, we haven't studied what the social issues of the day were when Jesus was walking the earth. There were extreme social issues, especially in the Roman Empire at that time. And so you might have said, well, how come he's not taking care of all those problems? Um, 
We know that when the early church set out, uh, that they turned the world upside down. And this is like what social movements are trying to do today. Social justice is, is doing its best to upend all the, the ways that society have, have behaved for the last hundred years and turn everything upside down. But you saw in our uh, scripture reading that the apostles were accused of turning the world upside down. So what did they do? Uh, Acts 17.5, but the Jews which believed not moved with envy. So the Jews which believed not, in today's context, we could say the Christians who believed not. And not because uh, Judaism and Christianity are identical, but remember, the Jews and Christians were no different at this time. There wasn't a word Christian at the time. So these were Jews that believed not because Christ was fulfilling the law of God and came as the Messiah for uh, the Jews and the whole world. It was supposed to be the same movement. So the Jews which believed not, who didn't believe in Christ, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. I love that language in the, in the King James. And <laughs> yeah, putting it politely. You, you, you can imagine this in some of our cities today, some lewd fellows of the baser sort. Uh, and gathered a company and set all the city in an uproar. So uh, these were um, not setting the cities in an uproar because of the gospel. These were to defeat the gospel. So they went to set the city in an uproar and assault the house of Jason and sought to bring them out, bring them out to the people. So Jason was harboring these Christians in the town. So they went to Jason's house, tried to pull out the Christians. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, that they, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. So their message, their gospel message, was turning the world upside down, not their social message, not trying to overthrow the government of the time, not trying to plead, the, the, um, uh, plead for the plight of the downtrodden, uh, the plight of the downtrodden from a Christian point of view is spiritual. Of course, people have real needs. I mean, lacking uh, food and resources and things like that. Those are real needs and we do address those. But when we speak of the work of Satan, it's keeping us from the light of the truth. And there's a scripture that says that God's children have never been seen begging in the street. So all you would have to do is make those people God's children and they won't be begging in the street because God's children don't beg in the street. So we could feed them so they're not, or supply them with needs so that they're not begging today, but we've actually changed nothing until we solve the spiritual problem. Um, and so these people have been turning the world upside down with the gospel and said, whom Jason hath received... And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar. That gets to the point. They turn the world upside down because it was contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, one Jesus. In the Roman Empire, it was very important that everyone understood Caesar was ruler over all. But not only that, Caesar was divine. So Caesar was connected with your political and your religious. Where did Caesar receive his divinity? Because no one was 
no one claimed that Caesar came down from heaven. No one claimed that his parents were deities and that he was born a deity. So how did they justify that Caesar was div divine? It's because they, uh, the state itself, Rome itself was divine. They had a mythology of the, of the founding of Rome, Romulus and Remus, and that they were suckled by wolves. And Romulus and Remus, um, I, I actually forget their origin. It didn't occur to me until just now that that might have been helpful. But they have this divine origin for the, the founding of Rome. And Rome as a state became a, a, a divine state. It was divinity. So the ruler, the Caesar, received his divinity from the state itself. So consider that, that when you speak against the state, obviously Caesar is the divine representation of that state. He's going to be upset. But the people, they might say, well, Caesar, he's corrupt. He does horrible things. But he, Caesar was always representative of the, the state. And so if you spoke against Caesar or spoke against the state, you were speaking against divinity. This was from on high. So the laws, the decrees, and so anything that countered that. Now, here, specifically, they were accusing him of saying, well, they're, they're calling Jesus a king, and there's no other king but Caesar. Clearly, this is uh, sedition. This is, um, yeah, treason. So this was the accusation at that time. And you think, well, but Jesus wasn't crowned a king. What difference does it make? Well, just remember that this, at this time, Christ had already resurrected and gone to heaven, and they were saying he is alive, and he is our king, and he's coming again. Obviously, that's going to, you know, the Roman state was divine and was going to last forever. So even if you're talking about the future, this would be a clash. Now, this brings up the point of church and state and the meeting of church and state. This is what the Sunday law is about. This is the time we live in. We hear this stirring in the political sphere. Uh, if your eyes are open to it, you see all the foundations being laid, that, that this is where it's going. Um, church and state will have to come together again. Um, we often think of the United States and the founding principles of the U.S. as being maybe the first government that did separate church and state. But that idea actually came from Christ. Uh, this is in three of the Gospels, but uh, Mark 12, 17 is probably the most popular uh, verse. And Jesus answered, popular wording, I should say. And Jesus answered, said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now this was quite a statement, because from a Christian perspective, it just makes sense. You know, you pay your taxes to the government, you pay your tithes and offerings to the church. And uh, at the time, they were trying to press uh, Jesus and say, well, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? Because here you are living as believers in God and you're living under a state that claims to be a divinity itself and Caesar who claims himself to be divine and he's collecting taxes. So you're paying your temple tax or your tithes to the church and that makes sense because you believe in God. So you're paying your tithes to God. Well, taxes would appear like tithing to a false god because Caesar claims divinity. 
And they're saying, well, should we, give it, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? He's claiming divinity. Doesn't that make us partakers in a pagan system? Wouldn't that be counter to God? And then he says, you know, pull out the coin. Whose face is on the coin? It's Caesar's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what belongs to God. What he's saying here is that Caesar, even though he was claiming himself divine and was therefore a false god, the head of a false religion, he also had a seat of authority as the head of state. And Jesus is saying there is a realm for statecraft and there is a realm for God, for spiritual, for the religious. And those two aren't the same. So as far as Caesar's authority um, reigned in the state, as far as his, yeah, as, as his authority extended for the state, you obey because that's the state. When it touches on God, he said, the things that are God's, uh, render to God the things that, are, that belong to God. So as soon as Caesar crosses over into the religious, he's already off uh, his authority. That's God's authority. So Jesus is saying, Caesar has authority over state and you respect that authority. He does not have authority over the things that are God's. And so you need to make that distinction. So in the United States, this is the founding of the country that was so important for religious liberty that, that um, in the Constitution, it separates those two things. It's saying there is a realm that has to do with religion that the state has no authority over. When the state, when the United States will legislate something to do with Sunday's sacredness, that's when they overstep their bound. You could say, well, the, the United States government has done all kinds of terrible things in their history, but maybe today more so than ever. We're told in scripture, uh, the United States represents that beast from the earth. It has lamb, horns like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. It has lamb-like principles. Horns are the governing principles. And so it's lamb-like. It has embedded in it separation of church and state. That's what Jesus just said. The state has authority over state things. God has authority over religious things. Um, Christ makes that separation. The lamb-like principles also reaffirm that principle. Uh, the lamb-like principles of the United States reaffirm that idea. But it will speak as a dragon. The, in, in Revelation, there's two dragons. There's a red dragon, and then there's that great dragon. The red dragon is pagan Rome. Pagan Rome, you've probably seen many times symbolized with the eagle. The standards had an eagle on it. But the, the second most often used symbol had a standard that had a red dragon. They, were, they also used the red dragon as a standard for Rome. So pagan Rome in Revelation is mentioned as the red dragon. Um, and then the great dragon obviously is Satan and Satan's principles, which were put through uh, pagan Rome. But so the United States will speak as a dragon. It will speak like Satan, like pagan Rome. These things will go back together again. Church and state are going to meet again. Uh, so that's, that's what we get to look forward to in our future. Um, but we often hear that the United States was founded as a Christian nation. 
this is going to be used to justify Sunday because all Christians except us keep Sunday. So as Christian principles of a Christian nation, uh, the Treaty of Tripoli is fascinating. Uh, John Adams, uh, I believe, wrote uh, the, the body of this treaty and then uh, he voted for it. He was the president. Oh, well, so I don't know that he hand wrote it because he was the president, but it's under his name. And Article 11 says, as the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, as it has in itself no character of enmity against the laws, religion, or tranquil tranquility of Muslims, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arises from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption in the harmony existing between the two countries. Tripoli was Libya, and there was pirating going on in the Mediterranean, in the Barbary Coast, as they called it. And so that we, we signed a treaty to try to stop the pirating. And just to reassure that government, that Muslim government, that we have no religious uh, problems with that government being Muslim, uh, they made it clear that we were not founded on the Christian religion. So very clearly, the founding fathers early on said, we are not founded on the Christian religion. We have, you could argue, Christian principles, like what we just saw, separation of church and state. But we were never supposed to be a state that was Christian, because if you were a Christian state, then you could decide what is Christian. Then you could decide who's a heretic. The whole point of the separation is that the state can never decide who's a heretic. And the word heretic, if you look it up, it just means going against orthodox beliefs of whatever organization has those beliefs. But it comes from a Greek word, and the, and the Greek word actually means choosing for oneself. So a heretic is someone who chooses for themselves. And so if a state mandates a religion, anyone who chooses their religion for themselves is a heretic. So that's the problem with a state religion, is that the state decides what you believe, and if you choose for yourself, you're a heretic. Our principles are that you choose for yourself, and the state has nothing to say about it. So you can see why this problem is going to become a real problem very soon. If the state steps across and begins to uh, legislate in the sphere of God, and decide who is a Christian, you can guess which side we're going to fall on. Because we're not, we don't act like the other Christians. We have a totally different day. Now this brings to the last point, which is, well, what about Romans 13 that talks about respecting the authority? That, the, that God has placed the governments over us and we need to respect that authority. Romans 13, 1, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. That's pretty powerful, saying the powers on the earth, they are ordained of God. And there's no power on the earth that is not ordained of God. So you're telling me that Nero, who persecuted Christians and did horrible things, that he his power was ordained by God. That is what the verse says. And remember, he's writing to the Romans. They live in Rome under the Caesars. I forgot to look at the year of this letter for Romans to see which, 
was the Caesar at the time, but it's right around that time of, of Caligula and um, uh, Claudius and then Nero. It's right in that range of time. None of them were stellar figures. So whoever is the Caesar of the moment, it would be hard for people reading this letter to say, really? Is Paul, Paul is telling us that Caesar has power ordained by God? How can that be? He's a pagan, he has deified himself. He doesn't acknowledge God. What does Paul mean here? So in verse 2, it goes on, Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Now, is this true? Caesar, uh, especially Caesar Augustus, when he legislated, he himself um, was an adulterer. He himself did all kind. He was hypocritical did all kinds of terrible things. He had people put to death. He did everything underhanded and bad that you could think of of doing as a ruler of a nation. And yet he prided himself on enacting laws against adultery because the, the, the society was falling apart so much. He was very concerned that they weren't going to reproduce enough to keep the Roman Empire going. So he, he made laws against adultery. He gave incentives for people that had, um, if you had at least three children with the same person, the same couple had three children together, um, there were all kinds of incentives, monetary incentives, and then if you had five and if you had seven, and the more children you had, the better, you'd get all kinds of stuff from the state. Um, he also banned the wearing of jewelry for um, virgins that were... Uh, the age of, tw not, not for virgins, for people without children and people not married. Uh, women who are 25 and older and unmarried without children could not wear jewelry in public. This was to really incentivize them to get married and have children, to um, propagate the state. So he had these laws that actually were there to cause people to do the right thing. And that's what Paul is saying. Rulers are not a terror to good works. So these horrible Caesars had laws on the books that were for good works. And then it says, uh, Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. The state always wants a well-behaved populace. Seventh-day Adventists should be the most well-behaved. We should not be caught doing anything that, would, um, that the state would fear, that the state would say, whoa, 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 these Seventh-day Adventists are becoming a threat to us. Always we should um, obey the laws as, as far as Caesar has authority to make laws, which is in all things state. The point is not that, you know, God is going to place into power the president who is going to be sitting wherever, whichever president is sitting in that office, when the Sunday laws go through and he ratifies it, God will have put that person there, just as he put Caesar, Caesar there in his day. Just as the rulers in his own day crucified him, 
those, power, those authorities were ordained of God. Even though they didn't obey God, they were there to organize society. It was there. You'll, you'll notice that as a society becomes more and more rebellious and disruptive, then the state has to be clamped down with more and more control. That's the only way to keep the state organized and working. And so as a, a nation becomes rebellious, get ready for the laws to start getting oppressive. It's only when a nation is um, supportive of the state that the state doesn't worry. Like, well, everyone behaves themselves. No one takes the laws by their letter. They take the spirit of the law. They're not always trying to angle and get away with stuff. But the more that you try to rebel and finagle, the state is going to say, well, you know, we didn't have to make this law before, but now look at how the people are behaving. Now we're going to have to put this law in. Now we're going to have to put this law in. That is from God to keep order in a nation. But that same spirit that's going to keep order is eventually going to overstep. But we are not to disobey before the state oversteps. Because if you go down on an issue, if you rebel against the state for something that is political and state, just because you feel like your rights are being violated by the state, but it has nothing to do with the law of God, you are not standing for Christ. And so you are going to speak up your voice and say, no, I have my rights and this is wrong. And the people will say, oh, you're just like all the other movements that are claiming this is wrong. But if we never say this is wrong until the state oversteps, overreaches into the realm of God's law, then the people know, oh, those people stand for God's law. That's the only thing that got them to react. Everything else, they didn't react to. We took away all their rights, they never said a word. But as soon as we violate God's law, now they're in an uproar. That's how you know who you stand for. If you stand up for your own personal rights because you just want more liberty and you think it's, you know, this is how it used to be and now they're clamping down on us and this is wrong, this is un-American. Are you American or are you Christian? Because we are Americans, but we are Christians first. The Bible indicates that we should be like people who have no home because our home is in heaven. We are waiting to go home. This is not our home. We're not fighting for rights on this home. We are keeping our eye on heaven, on the Lord. So as soon as the state violates God's law, that's the indication, like, okay, now we speak up. And when we speak up, we don't say, oh, and you violated all these other things and took away my liberties. No, no. You say, you have no authority to determine how I worship God. That's where you have no authority. You can steal all my money through graft and through taxes. You know, Caesar prints the money, he can take the money. Um, it'll, it'll hurt, it'll feel terrible. But we don't rely on Caesar for our food. We rely on God. So at every point in the, in the biblical history, when food was taken away, God provided another way. Manna in the desert. Elijah also was fed by ravens. Your food is always secure. That's why the Bible says God's people have never been seen begging and because he always provides. So the state could take everything away and that's okay if God is your God. If, that's, um, if you're one of God's people, 
He takes care of you. So that's why we don't have to worry about the state taking everything away that we hold dear. You've got you to ask yourself, do I hold dear all the material things that the state has access to? Or do I hold dear the principle that I can worship God the way God asks me to, so that I can obey God? That's why at the end, that's going to be the question. I've, I've mentioned this, I think every sermon ends with this. Every sermon always comes to the same point, that in the end, we have two choices. And those two choices are clear as mud. One person is God claiming worship and says that he will destroy you if you don't worship him. And then there's another one who sits in the seat of God claiming to be God, so he has the same name, sits in the same th seat, and, cla and claiming that you need to worship him or he will kill you. So both of them have the same name and sit in the same seat, but one is God and one isn't. And that's our choice. Just as it, when Jesus was crucified, uh, it's not, Barabbas' name is not written in the Bible, his first name, but sources at the time like Josephus say that his name was Jesus. His name was Jesus Barabbas. And Barabbas means son of the father. Bar Abba. That's why G Peter is called Peter Bar Jonah, son of Jonah. And Jesus Bar Abba, Barabbas, who's a criminal. And, and then Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who claims to be the son of the father. So they have the same name. One is a criminal, one is innocent. And they're put before you and the crowd is asked, which one? Which one do you want? And they take the criminal. They gladly take the criminal and let Jesus be crucified. It's amazing. That's the same choice we're going to have at the end. Is it going to be God or is it the one who sits in the seat of God claiming to be God? Which one? And the way we're going to choose is by our action, by who we worship. Is it going to be Sabbath or is it going to be Sunday? Um, We'll finish Romans 13 here. Romans 13, 4. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. That's the authority that the people in power of the state have. They have the authority <laughs> to execute wrath upon the doers of evil. The doers of, and, and the Bible also says that in these times, good will be called evil and evil good. So they might start persecuting people who are doing good and start rewarding people who are doing evil. Um, but I have a feeling that that's going to coincide with them overstepping into the realm of God's authority. Uh, so it's very important for us at this time to hold tight and obey the authorities until the moment when it steps into God's authority, into the realm of worship. <laughs> yeah, so uh, with that, let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have given us clear words of instruction all the way to the end of time. We're getting restless as time is closing, as we see the upheaval in the world. 
And we keep saying, Lord, when, when, how much longer? But Lord, we're thankful that you give us guidance on what to look for, how to behave, and to stay separate from this world, to be that light and hope because we are not wrapped up in the anxieties of the world. We are not getting depressed uh, like the world because we do have a message of hope. So Lord, we ask that you would bless us today and prepare us for this time that we can be that light of hope in our sphere of influence. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.